This past Thursday night, we held our first ever vision night in which we remembered our past, celebrated our present, and anticipated our future together. And so if you missed it, I would encourage you to go online and listen to it because we would like to encourage you to join your prayers with ours as we move forward into the future together. And the upshot of my message at Vision Night was, we need you. We need your help in order to become all that God wants us to be and to accomplish all that he wants us to do in the city and our wider world. So I commend that to you. Now, over the last several months, we have been making our way through the greatest sermon ever told. And I've suggested that at least one angle on Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount is to read it as Jesus' vision for the good life. So if you want to thrive and flourish as a human being, if you want to live a truly great life, this is it. This is the way. Now in the passage that is before us today, Jesus draws a series of contrasts between two different ways. There are two ways and only two. And it's interesting that Jesus uses that language because Christianity at its core is not a religion, it's not a code, it's not a philosophy, it's a way. Jesus wasn't primarily a spiritual guru offering new religious rites for us to observe or a moral teacher offering us a new code of ethics to keep or a new philosopher offering us a theory of life. But rather, he's a savior who offers us a new way, a new way of being, a new way of living. And it's instructive that Jesus uses that word, way, because that's the word that's used in the book of Acts. You won't find the word Christianity in the Bible. Instead, the book of Acts talks about how if a person gave their life to Jesus, they became followers of the way. They now belong to the way. And so a good question you might want to ask yourself is, are you following the way of Jesus? Now, in other realms of life, if someone asked you, well, are you training to become a lawyer or a surgeon or an electrician, you wouldn't respond to that question by saying, huh, I don't know. And yet sometimes when people are asked, are you following the way of Jesus, they say, I'm not sure. But if you're training to be a lawyer or a surgeon or an electrician, you know it. And in a similar way, if Jesus is training you in the way to the good life, you know it. So are you following the way? Well, in this passage, I'd like us to consider what Jesus has to say about this way under three headings. He tells us that this way is narrow. He tells us that this way is dangerous. And yet, despite all that, he tells us that this way is possible. So let's consider each. The way is narrow, the way is dangerous, but the way is possible. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 7. You'll find this passage printed on page 812 in the Pew Bible. It's also found in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 20. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Will you please pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And therefore, we pray that by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a real encounter with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that Jesus tells us about this way is that it is narrow, and that's what makes it hard. Now, this is one of the major issues that people have with Christianity. They would say that it produces people that are narrow-minded. They would say that the problem with Christianity is it says that there really is such a thing as objective truth that isn't just a matter of public opinion, And therefore, when it comes to certain beliefs, there are things that are right and wrong. And when it comes to certain behaviors, there are things that are right and wrong. And on the one hand, that restricts our freedom because it means that we can't just do whatever we want. But on the other, people would say it's a problem because this kind of thinking leads to intolerance and arrogance. And this is a common complaint about not just Christianity in particular, but religion in general. If you think that your religion gives you the truth, that you possess the truth, then it easily leads to feelings of superiority. And if people around you believe different things that you do, and if they live in accordance with those beliefs, if you think that you possess the truth, then you just don't disagree. You think those people are wrong. You might even think that they're going to be condemned by God because of what they think or how they act. And as the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau said years ago, we can never live in peace if you think that your opponent is damned, damned by God. So this is what concerns a lot of thoughtful people today. They would say that exclusive claims to truth that we could never prove make it far too easy for us to stereotype, to marginalize, and to oppress others. In other words, if you think that you are right and others are wrong and God is on your side, then that's what leads to religious violence. Isn't that what we're seeing in Gaza and Israel and all kinds of places all over the world today? And most people would say, in light of that, wouldn't it be safer? Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be more humble if we just recognize that, look, life is a mystery. You've got your truth, I've got mine, and who's to say who's right and who's wrong? We would say it's much safer not to make any kind of exclusive claims to truth, and that's the only thing that will lead to acceptance and peace in our world today. Doesn't that sound right? So most people would say, well, Jesus' words here are problematic because when he talks about this narrow gate and this narrow way, it leads to people being narrow-minded. And that's what causes people to become intolerant, unthinking, unsympathetic, unkind, and bigoted. And you know what? You know what? 
the critics have a point. <laughs> that is often true. That is all, often what happens. That's exactly what happens. And so as Christians, we need to realize that there have been many times when Christians have acted in those unthinking, unsympathetic, intolerant, and bigoted ways. And if that's true, then we need to repent. We need to acknowledge our fault. We need to make amends. So oftentimes that's true. It does happen. Christians are guilty of being narrow-minded in that negative sense. But I want to show you that this problem with narrow-mindedness is actually a little bit more complex than what we might think by looking at the surface. There's actually a right and a wrong way to be narrow-minded. And of course, no one wants to be ignorant, intolerant, unthinking, uncaring, unsympathetic. But if we're not narrow-minded in the sense that Jesus is talking about, if we're not narrow-minded in the sense that Jesus requires, then we are going to miss out on the open and inclusive invitation that he offers to all of us without exception to experience the presence and power of God in our lives. If we're not narrow-minded in the sense which Jesus requires, we will miss the way to the good life. So I want to show you this. I want to show you two things. First of all, pay attention to who is saying these words. Jesus made outrageously exclusive claims about himself. Just consider some of the things Jesus said. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said eternal life, true life, real life, the good life, the kind of life that we most want, the life that we long for, comes from knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And Jesus said no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I mean, can you think of more shockingly exclusive claims than the ones that Jesus made? He says there's, there's only one true God. All other gods are false. And the only way to know this one true God is through him. So Jesus made shockingly outrageous exclusive claims. And yet, and yet, Jesus was shockingly inclusive in his relationships. Have you ever stopped to consider that? Jesus was famous for hanging out with all the wrong, wrong kinds of people. He hung out with anyone and everyone. Religious types, non-religious types, priests and politicians. The down and out as well as the buttoned up. The high and mighty as well as the meek and lowly. Men and women, rich and poor, lepers and beggars, hookers and thieves, thugs and drunks. He welcomed them all with a loving embrace he showed compassion and kindness and sympathy and sensitivity to everyone without ever compromising the truth of those exclusive claims. So he embraces anyone and everyone because no one was beyond the reach of his grace. So how do you account for that? Jesus makes these outrageously exclusive claims about himself and yet was outrageously inclusive in his relationships. Most people today are the opposite. Most people today are very lax about their devotion to God. 
but very narrow-minded and exclusive when it comes to their relationships, especially in terms of who they're going to be friends with or who they're going to spend time with. But Jesus is narrow-minded and exclusive in his devotion to God and yet broad-minded and inclusive in all of his relationships. Now, why is that? Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because Jesus was inconsistent? Was he just a bad thinker? Maybe a nice guy, but low intelligence. Or could it be that the exclusive truth that Jesus claims explains the inclusive love that he offers? Could it be that the exclusive truth that Jesus claims explains rather than undermines the inclusive love that he offers? And see, what Jesus is trying to show us is that the more you commit yourself to the exclusive truth of Jesus, the more that you will exhibit the inclusive love of Jesus to the world around you. These two things are not mutually exclusive. They explain one another. They're inextricably related to one another. So I think we've got it all wrong. We think exclusive truth claims are the enemy of love, but no, the problem is not being narrow-minded. It's actually all just a question about what you're narrow-minded about. G.K. Chesterton once put it well. He said years ago that he believes that the purpose of an open mind is the same as an open mouth. You don't open your mind or your mouth forever. No, the whole purpose of an open mind or an open mouth is to clamp down on something solid. So when Jesus tells us that the gate is narrow, he's not telling us to be narrow-minded in the sense that we should be intolerant, uncaring, unsympathetic, unkind, but rather we should be narrow-minded in terms of where we think the good life will be found. We should be singular in our focus on Jesus. And though this path might be narrow and hard, it's open to any and all who are willing to take it. So the first thing that Jesus shows us is that this way is narrow. But the second thing he shows us is that this way is dangerous. Verse 15, he says, beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So he tells us to beware, to, to watch out, to be on our guard because there are false prophets, false teachers who want to knock us off the path. Now these false prophets or these false teachers or maybe we could think of them as false influencers are dangerous not only because they are deadly but because they are deceitful. See, first of all, Jesus tells us that these false teachers are dangerous because they're deadly. He calls them wolves and that's not a compliment. In the world in which Jesus lived in the first century, wolves were the natural enemy of sheep. And so if you're a sheep and you're making your way in the world and all of a sudden you come across a wolf, you would have been completely defenseless. Guess what? You are breakfast. A sheep is completely helpless against a wolf. You're in danger of being devoured. But if that isn't bad enough, Jesus suggests that what makes these false teachers, these false influencers, so dangerous is that they're deceptive. They're wearing a disguise. They look like sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So they appear to be just like you, as harmless as a sheep, 
And they might appear very moral and upright. They might even use biblical language. They might look good. They might look like sheep, but actually all they're interested in doing is eating sheep. And I have to tell you that as a pastor, I, I, I think about my role, a very important aspect of my role is to help protect the flock from imposters and to help protect people from these deceitful lies, these false influencers. At our vision night on Thursday night, we talked about how 20 years ago, if you had walked through those doors, you would have walked into a very dead church. And there was only a handful of people attending at the time, maybe 12 to 15 on a good Sunday. And I don't know what you would have heard in terms of a sermon, but you would not have heard the way of Jesus. But then in 2008, a new pastor arrived as part of the turnaround here at Central, and he began preaching Jesus and preaching the gospel. And there were some among that small handful of people that left the church when Howard arrived because they treated this place like their own private social club. They didn't want to be a part of it if it was actually turning into a church. But there were a small group, maybe two or three, who who stayed at Central, even during this turnaround. And one of them was a woman named Edith Sagel, who a few years ago died at the ripe old age of 101. And so when I came to Central in 2011, I visited with Edith in the hospital. And I said to Edith, I'm curious. I'm really curious because there were friends that left the church when Howard arrived and started telling people about Jesus, but you stayed. Why did you stay? And I'll never forget her words. She said, well, I didn't have a problem with Dr. Eddington. I didn't have a problem with him talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel with us. It reminded me of what I'd heard as a kid. The former pastor had led me to think that people no longer believed the gospel, but if they do, I'm happy to be among them. And see, that's the danger that we're running up against. It's so easy to be led astray. And so how do we cultivate our powers of discernment? Charles Spurgeon once said that discernment is not really the ability to, to tell the difference between right and wrong. Anybody can do that. No, true discernment is the ability not to tell the difference between right and wrong, but to tell the difference between what is right and almost right. The difference between what is right and almost right. And that is what we need to do. We need to cultivate our ability to discern the difference between right and almost right in order to stay on the path. So how do you spot a wolf in sheep's clothing? Well, Jesus gives us two tests. He tells us you have to check the root and you have to check the fruit. So in verse 16, he says, you will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So there's a connection. There's an organic connection between the root and the fruit. And so especially when it comes to teachers and prophets and influencers, we have to trace their ideas back to the root as well as to the future fruit. So we should pay attention to the fruit of their life in terms of their character, but also in terms of what they teach. So when you're presented with ideas, trace it back to the root and then project it forward to the fruit. So here's an example. People say, 
you must not make exclusive truth claims when it comes to God or religion because that leads to intolerance. And every human being has a right to be treated with equal dignity. Now, we would affirm that. That's a good idea. But let's trace the idea back to its root. Where do we get this idea? Where did it come from? Where do we get the idea that human beings should be treated with equal dignity? If you embrace a purely naturalistic explanation of the world, then that means that this universe is just a cosmic accident. We human beings are the result of a collision of atoms. There's no rhyme or reason for it all. All there is is DNA. And therefore, there really is no sense in talking about right and wrong or good or evil or justice or injustice. All there is is the replication of DNA, and therefore we should expect, we should expect the strong and the powerful to crush the weak and the vulnerable. And we shouldn't see anything wrong with that. We shouldn't shed a tear. We shouldn't bat an eye. That's just the way it is. Survival of the fittest. And yet we know deep down in our bones that that's not right. So where do we get this idea that every human being has dignity? Well, it doesn't come from an atheistic, naturalistic view of the world. No, it comes from Christianity. The Bible tells us that every human being without exception is created in God's image and therefore we are imbued with inestimable value. And therefore we possess an intrinsic right to be treated in accordance with our worth. So you see, the whole idea of tolerance springs from the Christian well. You can't get it from anywhere else. And so as we examine the ideas that we almost take for granted, we have to consider their root. Where did they come from? And the fact is that some of our most deeply held values as a society spring from a Christian source. And we may not realize it, but we're still living off the fumes of Christianity. But what happens when these ideas are no longer connected to the source? If you cut off the root, you will not get the desired fruit. But then secondly, rather than examining the roots, you could also project, what kind of a fruit will this idea produce? So take an idea and imagine where it'll lead. Most people would prefer to say, all religions are equally valid, and therefore no religious claim is superior to another. Now that sounds very fair and democratic, does it not? And so therefore, people would suggest that the way of life is not narrow and hard, no, it's broad and it's easy. All roads basically will lead you to the same place, so you don't need to be too picky. There's plenty of room for diversity of opinion and for permissive behaviors. But if you have your truth and I have mine, if truth is relative, then we lose the ability to call out injustice. See, think about where this idea eventually leads. If you say that all religious claims are equally valid and no religious claim is superior to another, well, what if I told you that well, this person's religion requires that they be racist and commit genocidal acts. If all religious claims are equally valid, then there's no ability to hold other people to account for what they think, how they live, how they act. See, that's an idea that will produce bad fruit. 
And of course, we see this being played out in our world today. We have to affirm academic freedom, freedom of expression, but have you noticed that our university presidents are having a really, really hard time just saying that genocide and racism and anti-Semitism are wrong? See, all religious claims are not equally valid. Some are better than others. And so we have to examine both the fruit and the root of these ideas. So as we see, Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. He's telling it like it is. And despite the fact that this way is narrow and hard, and despite the fact that it's dangerous because there's imposters who are trying to knock us off this path, it's possible. Despite all that, it's still possible with God's help. It's actually possible to follow this way and to keep to this path. But how? Well, I'd like to address one thing, especially if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure if you're a Christian. One of the things that often troubles people is that Jesus says, those who find this way are few. And understandably, we begin to worry, well, what about everybody else? What about all those who don't find this way? And so in response, I would say, yes, Jesus says, those who find this way are few, but you also have to hold this passage in balance with Revelation 7. Because there, the apostle John receives a glimpse into God's ultimate future that he's promised. And what does he see? He doesn't see a mere few. No, he sees a multitude of people that no one could ever count from every nation and people and tribe and language gathered around the throne of God and giving Jesus the praise for the salvation that only he could bring. So John sees a multitude of people that no one could ever count. But I also want to remind you of a place in Luke chapter 13 where Jesus' own disciples pose this very question. They say, Jesus, will those who are saved be few? Will everyone be saved? Will many people be saved? Nobody be saved? Or only a few? And how might Jesus respond to that? Well, his response is, instructive because he doesn't directly answer their question and that's often how Jesus operates he doesn't engage in speculation so he doesn't give them facts and figures numbers and statistics he's not going to engage in these speculative questions instead as always he presses to the practical so he ignores the question and in response he says you strive to enter by the narrow door will those who are saved be few you Strive to enter by the narrow door. He keeps it practical, and that's good advice. You know why? Because you can't ever know the final eternal destiny of anybody. So don't bother trying. The only person you have any control over is yourself. So you make up your own mind and strive to enter by the narrow door. And once again, he's telling us the door is narrow. And therefore, it would be easy to miss. We have to look to find it. And he's telling us that this door is narrow. We, we can't carry our baggage with us. We're going to have to leave some things behind. At a minimum, we're going to have to leave behind sin and self. Perhaps certain relationships, certain practices. We're going to have to leave some things behind in order to squeeze through that narrow door. And he tells us the door is narrow. It, it, it might be a little bit like a turnstile in the subway. You can only pass through one person at a time. You can't ride through on the coattails of anyone else. But Jesus says you have to strive to enter by that narrow door. It's not going to happen naturally, automatically, or spontaneously. 
No, you have to make a deliberate decision to pass through it. And that word strive is related to the word agonize. This is not going to be easy, but it's worth it. And it's possible. Well, how is it possible? Suppose you say, okay, I want to choose this way. That's hard, that's narrow, but it leads to life. What do I need to do? What, what religious observances must I keep? What, what ethical rules must I follow? What philosophical theory of life must I adopt? But remember, no, Christianity is not ultimately a religion, a code, or a philosophy. See, we often think that in order to sort of squeeze our way through that narrow door, we have to approximate a certain standard. We think there's a, a certain standard that we need to reach through our own accomplishment, through our own achievement. But as we listen to Jesus' words, we realize that, no, the, the gate, the narrow door, is not a religious right. It's not an ethical code. It's not a theory of life. It's a person. The narrow door is a person. There's another place in the Gospel of John where Jesus is approaching his imminent death and he tells his disciples that pretty soon he's going to leave them. But he says, don't worry because I'm going to prepare a place for you and you will be with me where I am. And I love Thomas. Thomas, the disciple, he starts scratching his head and he starts thinking to himself, hold on. Jesus, we have no idea where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? And Jesus essentially looks at him and says, Thomas, where have you been? <laughs> where have you been all this time? I am the way. I am the way that leads you to truth and life. And you see, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion, every other philosophy in the history of the world. Because every other religious teacher was self-effacing, whereas Jesus was self-advancing. Every other religious teacher would very humbly say, look, based on my experience, what I've observed about human life, as far as I can tell, this is the way. If you follow my example, if you do what I do, you will find the way and it will lead you to truth and life. But Jesus says the exact opposite. Jesus says, I am the way. And if you receive me, if you embrace me, if you trust me, I will give you truth and life. And it's all based on what I've already done for you through my suffering, my death, and my resurrection. You see, the one way is a way of merit. It's based on what you achieve, but the other way, the way of Jesus, is the way of grace. And you receive what he's done for you. And you see, that's what changes everything. Grace is what makes this hard, narrow, dangerous way possible. Grace makes this way possible. But you know what? It's also what keeps you humble. You see, if you thought that the way to the life that Jesus promises is through your doctrinal correctness or your religious observance, or your philosophical understanding, well then, you'd have a lot of reason to feel superior, right? But if Jesus gives you life as a free gift because of what he's accomplished for you, then you don't have a leg to stand on in order to look down in superiority over others. So you see, his grace not only makes this way possible, it's also 
what keeps you humble. So if you embrace Jesus as the way, the narrow gate, and you receive the truth and the life that he offers, everything will change. And therefore, my encouragement to us as a church is let us be narrow-minded and exclusive in our devotion to God. Let's be singular in our focus on Jesus and at one and the same time, broad-minded and inclusive in all of our relationships because we know that Jesus offers this exclusive way to life to any and all, regardless of who they are or what they've done, because no one, no one is beyond the reach of his grace, not even you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that Jesus offers us the way to the good life. Help us to become people who are following the way. We acknowledge that this way is narrow and we acknowledge that this way is dangerous. But we pray that you would help us to understand that the exclusive claims that Jesus made about himself explains the inclusive love that he offers to others. So help us to embrace that exclusive truth, that inclusive love, so that we too might become people like Jesus who offer the way to truth in life, to any and all, without exception, because it's a miracle that we ourselves have been recipients of this way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.